content warning. This episode of Stargate SG-1 uh, has a scene depicting rape and nudity. Uh, in, it's in the second half of the episode, so it's not. It's in the content that we'll cover in the second podcast episode. Um, basically, we'll 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 talk about it when we get there. It's it's a real bad scene that was uh, put in by executives uh it, it doesn't add much creatively to the episode but if you want to skip that and i wouldn't blame you for uh if you do uh the the scene starts at around one hour one minute and 51 seconds in the episode and and ends at 104 36 so up to you um but uh, enjoy the show <laughs> it's a great big world with a great big swirl when you step inside to another world. We're talking Stargate, it's a crazy trip. You can go quite far and you don't need a car or even a ship. It's getting picky here. There's Colonel O'Neill and Carter and Daniel and Teal. Look out for that Cree, everyone, and welcome back to Jaffa Takes, the podcast where we watch or rewatch Stargate uh, all the way through. And today we're covering the second half of the pilot episode of Stargate SG-1, Children of the Gods. Mm, buckle up, because some fucked up shit happens in this one we're going to have to talk about. Uh, joining us today, we have Eric. Hello. And we have Jimmy Dean. Hello. Jimmy Dean? Yes. Oh, hi. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, so l- let's just jump right into it because uh, we're a little bit time limited and uh, the, 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 the second half is longer than the first half. Don't ask me how that works, but that, that's how it is. Um, so we open like, okay, so when we last, last left off, everyone was uh, dialing back to Earth after the Abidonian fiasco. Where uh, Skara and Share got captured, Ferretti got injured, uh, another soldier uh, got killed. I think the the other guy who was there, who I don't think is ever named, um, and were so they're going through the Stargate, dragging Ferretti behind them, and then everyone is looking real worried about everything. And uh, I guess Major Samuels uh, yells into walkie-talkie right after they go through to close the iris, and we see for the first time what he's talking about, which is the iris that they've installed over the last, I don't know, two hours over the Stargate. They seem to have a real quick turnaround with this thing, because it looks... Uh, the way it closes looks kind of... I don't know. It doesn't look like a, a how a real thing like this would close. It looks more sci-fi-ish. Uh, but good R&D at the SGC, I guess. They they just had that ready to go. That, that uh, wouldn't but work, bas- right? So, they explain it. I mean, that wouldn't work, uh, but it's a sci-fi thing, so they can make up whatever rules they want. It, uh, it's just, the, you guys so, have been explaining over the past three or four recordings that the the, uh-huh. the portal disintegrates anything. I just presume yeah. that that will be disintegrated so, very soon. It would, uh, if... If they were to close it while the port, while the Stargate is in the process of currently opening, the whoosh that comes out of it would disintegrate the iris at that point. So that would that wouldn't work. You're right, but the way they they talk about it is 
First of all, if the Stargate's already open and they close it, it's a barrier, and anything that goes through the Stargate doesn't even reintegrate on the other side because there's no room for it. It just, I, I don't know, splats and is atomized. I don't, I don't really know what you're supposed to make of conservation of matter or anything in that scenario. Um, but the other thing is, if it's completely closed and the, the Stargate tries to open, it's not going to let it open, I think. Because uh, I, I think they used it that way a few times later on, but it's not very clear. Mostly, what you have to remember is iris closed equals no one's coming through. And uh, I think they say it... Uh, no, wait, they're going to explain how they, they, they get through it. That they're going to have a whole system to recognize who's on the other side to... Uh, to to uh, know to open it for them so that they don't don't go splat because if you go through the stargate and the iris is closed you're dead basically that's it's not like a solid wall or anything you just you go through and then you don't come back okay so yeah basically it's just it's their basic defense it's their version of putting a big cover stone on it but it's like retractable and and everything so they can just have it up whenever they need it and not have it up when they want to use the gate so that's that's practical. Um, and I'll see that on many other alien planets. That seems like a pretty important uh, upgrade to this thing. Uh, once again, I don't even know how they physically attached it to this thing because we don't see a frame for it or anything. It literally closes over the opening in the Stargate. I don't know what what does that, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he explains that it's made of pure titanium. No one can go through it. Whatever. Uh, and then, okay, so Hammond sees that Ferretti is hurt bad and is being put in a stretcher. He asks O'Neill what happened. Uh, O'Neill tells him, well, we were attacked by some aliens there. Hammond says, uh, the same ones that came here. Uh, O'Neill says, yeah, so probably because uh, we didn't see them. He, he doesn't tell him that there, but they, they weren't around to see them. So it's all secondhand descriptions, I guess. Um but, uh, yeah, O'Neill tells him that, uh, Scar and Shari were kidnapped. Uh, and then Daniel, uh, picks his moment to go and introduce himself to Hammond. Tries to shake his hand, just hands his hand out. He says, Hi, I'm Daniel. I'd like to be on a military team to go and save my wife, please. And Hammond is not receptive to that demand. <laughs> he basically, uh, stares him down and says, uh, no, we're not gonna do what you want. Uh, you're gonna listen to me and we're gonna come up with a plan, okay? Um, cause, you know, that's how the military chain of command works. Uh, I guess they have other wounded people there or corpses. It's not, uh, super clear. Uh, so anyway, we cut over to what we're gonna learn in a few scenes is Chulak. Uh, which is uh, Apophis's world, uh, where his, I guess, main base of operations is, or at least where the Jaff the his main uh, Jaffa force come from and operate. Um, so we're in a bit uh, gladiator big uh, gladiatorial dungeon pit kind of place with uh, grates covering the only exit. Uh, where there's a bunch of prisoners there, including Scarlet and Shari. You're talking uh, about the castle. We, we go to Camelot. Yeah, the this castle. This episode begins in Camelot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's Camelot, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's basically that. It's a cheap castle set that, uh, once again, it's one of those sets that are going to reuse a whole bunch to denote a, ver a variety of alien planets. Um, if I was a betting man, I would bet there's an episode of Xena where we see this set. <laughs> I don't know. Xena was shot in, like, Australia or New Zealand or something. Zena, Am I wrong about that? Zena is entirely shot in New Zealand. 
yeah, there you go. This, that's really far away from Vancouver. It would have been a hell of a trip to use the exact same set as this. Uh, yeah, but it was around the same. The set. T- yeah. They sent it through the Stargate to Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm going to um, say I'm the resident Xena expert here. Uh, mm-hmm. It does have castles. The The main thing is Xena is a lot more saturated uh, lighting-wise. So yeah. it would never yeah. be as dark as what we see in this Oh, scene. you're right. Yeah, this episode is particularly desaturated. Uh, I don't... I don't. I, I've been watching ahead a little bit. I haven't really paid that much attention to the color. I feel like this one is like they really color corrected because there's three planets in the same episode, and they wanted you to always know which planet you were on. It's like, kind of like how they did on the Matrix, but that was before that. But you know, sorry. Um, so uh, yeah, the the Jaffa and Teal'c who graciously opens his helmet anytime he's there uh, to show us who he is. Uh, they, they, they go down to the prisoners. Uh, he points to Share and says, her. Uh, so the other Jaffa grab her. Uh, Scarif tries to fight him back and struggles against them. They toss him to the ground and point the staffs at him. Uh, Tilk once again, sort of sideways indicates that he's trying to not make good of it, but trying to minimize uh, the, the 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 suffering of people by being reasonable and telling Skara to stop struggling to save himself, basically, um, as as a kind of running theme for Teal'c as uh, Apophis's servant. Um, so yeah, they uh, he Skara relents. And they just, these, these big, uh, Temple of Doom looking guys drag Share out of there. Uh, I don't know if that's, those are supposed to be Jaffa or humans. Uh, I don't think they really thought that far ahead. <laughs> but, their 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 roles are, are as enforcers, so you would imagine they're Jaffa. But, but they're, you know, they're not dressed like the rest of them. So it's a little weird. But anyway, uh, I don't think we're ever going to see these guys again after this episode. It gets more standardized that way. I don't know if we see uh, a bunch of the prisoners in this scene or if it's just later on, but there's a bunch of costumes among the prisoners. No, we don't really see them. I'll, I'll talk about it more later. Um, that are interesting. They, they wanted to make those extras stand out in some way, and you, you get to see some shit later. Um, okay. Yeah, I have a favorite among the prisoners. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think we're all thinking of one, but there's another one also who I'm going to mention him when, when we get a better shot of him. He's probably in that crowd somewhere. But uh, anyway, so then the other prisoners uh, hold Skara back because he wants to run out after his sister because they're just trying to save him from getting gunned down. Uh, he ends up uh, running, but right up against the slamming grate. So he's stopped there in his tracks. Doesn't get to follow her. Uh, so then, yeah, we cut back to Earth, where O'Neill is visiting Kowalski in the infirmary, who's sitting with Freddy's unconscious body, and he has bandages and a respirator on, and Kowalski is sitting in a chair next to the bed with a cup of coffee in his hand, and he's nodding off, he's clearly been there, hasn't gotten any rest since the the, the Stargate mission, uh, he's losing sleep over this, because I guess that's his best buddy, uh... O'Neill basically tells him, uh, yeah, you should get some rest. It's fine. Someone's going to call you if he wakes up or whatever. Uh, but he understands that he's worried. Um, so, yeah, then uh, we see O'Neill, since he doesn't currently have a mission, uh, put his 
leather jacket back on and start to walk out of the base and he spots Daniel who's just standing around on his way out um, goes up to talk to him and Daniel says well uh, technically, I don't know, I've been off the grid for a year on a different planet. No one can acknowledge I'm here. I don't have an apartment or a place to live or anything. And I also don't have any quarters on this space, I guess. So no one knows where to put me. Kind of sucks. Uh, and Daniel says he doesn't even know what to do with himself. So O'Neill takes that cue and says, all right, come with me. And they go over to his place. Um, so, yeah, they walk out. This is a little... Okay, so we cut straight to O'Neill's house where he pulls two beers out of the fridge. He kind of juggles one in his hand on his way over to Daniel, which is a real shitty thing to do with a beer because <laughs> that thing is going to foam right out of there if he shakes it too much. But anyway, okay, uh, he goes so up to... Daniel can deal with a foamy the... beer. Oh, he can't deal with beer, as is about to become extremely clear. Um, I'm drinking so... one myself. I'm a background guy, mm -hmm. so I just want to know, do you think that O'Neill has ever tried to eat a meal with that giant spoon and fork hanging on the wall? Oh, God, I want to see that now, what you're talking about. It's uh, right when he's coming out of the oh, kitchen. Oh, God, you're right. Th that's some um, peak fucking, like, I don't know, uh, suburb cottage, like, uh, it's not, what's the, it's not cottage core, but it's, like, close to that style, because that didn't really exist back then. Yeah. Like, I, I've definitely had aunts and uncles that had that kind of decoration in their house. I mean, if I had that spoon, <laughs> I would try to eat some Reese's Puffs out of a giant bowl with it. Oh, yeah. A big, it's like, the whole, the whole, the whole box in a giant bowl of it, and you just, like, scoop the, the thing in one big scoop. That's a big, big spoon. You're right. Honey, uh, my, honeycomb big. <laughs> uh, that might be the episode uh, picture now, because that's a that's a good, good little background detail. Uh, oh, yeah, has too big. Yeah, yeah, the spoon is too big. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that's a classic cartoon from that is more recent than this, but not by much. Uh, very early internet stuff. Ask your parents, kids. Uh, <laughs> so O'Neill has a super fucking nice house he has a huge living room with a fireplace in it which he's like put a log in and started a fire for his buddy Daniel there uh, which is nice but Daniel having allergies I, I bet the smoke isn't helping him because like the first thing we see is him sneezing into a big old Kleenex or handkerchief standing right over the mantelpiece looking at O'Neill's uh, many medals that are framed right above there uh, as he comes over and hands him a beer. And okay, I want to know, there's another bottle of beer that's sitting on a mantle there, which answers the question I'm, I was going to have in a minute. Uh, so that's good, because that's a possible uh, mistake, I guess, but uh, maybe it's not. Um, so uh, so they, we, we kind of pick up mid-conversation there. Uh, so Daniel is catching O'Neill up on what happened on Abydos in the year uh, where he wasn't there. Uh, he says, well, as soon as you left, we had a big party. Uh, they treated Daniel like their savior, which, eh, you know, he, he sure is white. Um, he, what, at, at least Daniel says he's embarrassed about it. And uh, he says, well, it's amazing you turned out so normal. Uh, and Daniel, which, of course, Daniel does the thing, which is, aha, but like, thanks to my wife, I... And then he gets sad because he just mentioned her and remembered that she's been captured perpetual uh, wife guy Daniel oh, Jackson yeah. uh, Daniel 
big white guy for like his first his first big story arc there is mostly that um that's that's his one motivation and he's really dogged and determined about it uh even like O'Neill like O'Neill's main motivation is nominally to save Skara and uh, he even he's not like as dedicated to that as Daniel is um Jackson and O'Neill go well together because they're on opposite ends of the spectrum of wife guy uh-huh. yeah <laughs> O'Neill has gone through the whole the entire wife life uh, and now he's an ex-wife guy uh, he doesn't like not, not in a way where he is obsessed with his ex just he doesn't have a wife anymore and he still has the big suburban ho- house or I guess he, he it's not the same house he used to live in because you know that house is going to show up later on but um, yeah cur- like Air Force Colonel pays pretty well considering that house uh, he lives alone in it apparently um, so yeah uh, Daniel uh, tells a little anecdote where uh, everyone laughed at him when he tried to grind some flour and like they, they everyone there thought it's a super simple thing task to do and he was like making a fool of himself and Shari would la- would really giggle and stuff and he thought she was really cute at it and then he points at his beer and says uh, this stuff is going straight to my head and then he says, you must have gate lag, which is a pretty good point. No no reason to think that the time zone the Stargate is in on Abydos has anything to do with Central or whatever this is in, since they're in Colorado, I guess. Um, <clears throat> and then O'Neill points out uh, that Daniel has only had one beer, and he says, he's a, you're a cheaper date than my, my wife, wife was. And I was going to point out, he just uncapped that beer and had one sip of it, so that's not even a beer, but that other beer on the mantle uh, clears that uh, inaccuracy, which I guess isn't. that. that that's his second beer. Daniel would uh, have to case. be metabolizing that beer remarkably fast to immediately mm-hmm. be drunk. Well, we, we don't know how long it's been since, since he drank the first one. Maybe, like, he drank the first beer, then they built the fire, then, then O'Neill went to get the second pair of beers. But uh, I guess, I don't know. We we know that there's moonshine on Abydos. Uh, we don't know that Daniel's had any for a year, so maybe like his 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 system has become really uh, I don't know uh, unaccustomed to alcohol. Um, so yeah, O'Neill uh, O'Neill references his wife as a as a cheap date, uh, and uh, Daniel says, "Yeah." So speaking of her, uh, where is she? When when do I get to meet her? And that's that's when O'Neill reveals that uh, no, you're not gonna because uh, I'm divorced. Uh, since like he reminds us uh, that th- does he mention the the kid there? Uh, no, he j- he just says that. Um, oh, okay, yeah, they they do talk about it. Uh, that uh, yeah, by the time he came back from Abydos, she was already gone. Uh, I guess uh, she had fi- filed the papers and everything. Um, so yeah, he, he um, yeah. So Daniel says he's really sorry, and O'Neill says he is too, and he gives a really thoughtful uh, uh, introspection about what happened to his relationship, which which is that his wife forgave him but couldn't forget. So like that that ate at her and uh, he was the opposite uh, where he didn't forgive himself but he sometimes just stops thinking about it and sometimes it's fine and that yeah that does seem like a really uh, unpleasant relationship to keep going at that point if that's the two attitudes you have that that doesn't seem compatible so it's different from the uh, movie it's like yeah clearly I mean it, it is a year later 
the movie presents that he's just completely silent, like, axed himself off from his wife. So his wife leaving him yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But like I think I think what the the way we're supposed to reconcile that with the movie is uh he has this character arc on the movie and then he comes back and he's ready to live life again and he's kind of he feels like he's kind of took taken a step towards moving on and being able to live and like he says like the way he did that was that well while he was fighting aliens he kind of start started forgetting about his kid because he was so busy and stuff and like that that was like his coping mechanism and then like his wife meanwhile could never ever stop thinking about it even though she didn't blame him for it because she was like uh i don't know what the word that i'd use but uh, you know she would she would forgive him for it and like but you know, always thinking of your dead son. That's that's another. That's not a cool place to be psychologically. Uh, I hope, I hope they got or are getting professional help for this. I don't know that we see that exactly because you know, mental health taboo, very much taboo in uh, depictions in fiction, especially in the nineties. Well, I mean, on, on lesser shows maybe, but on Ally McBeal, yeah, strong mental health, yeah. On- yeah, I, I was. I thought you were about to mention The Sopranos, but yeah, that that paragon of prestige drama, Ally McBeal, also addressed this. I guess <laughs> um, there are like in the future of Stargate. Like I, I, I do remember that on Stargate Atlantis, they have a, a dedicated therapist uh, that's helping the team with their shit, and I don't think that ever happens on SG One. But uh, I guess that's uh, even going back to TNG, you had Troy and stuff, so. It's not that weird to have a role that's just helping the characters uh, deal with the horrific alien stuff that they have to go through. Speaking of horrific alien stuff, uh, <laughs> we cut back to a harem, basically, on Chulak, where all the attractive lady slaves that were captured were put in really pretty dresses and are just laying around there in a more luxurious-looking cell. Including the, the the lady sergeant we saw from the the beginning of the episode that which who got captured on Earth who's still wearing her dog tags along with that uh, lacy dress to so to make sure we we remember who she is um, she looks really scared sitting in the corner and uh, Teal spots her right away and goes well okay points at her goes her uh, and like uh, these uh, Temple of Doom guys I mentioned uh, go over and grab her. Uh, she protests. She says, "I'm a sergeant in the U.S. Air Force." Because poor lady, she probably prob- probably doesn't even understand what happened because no one told her about the star the Stargate. Uh, she's uh, not not having a good day, and it's about to get even worse. Because um, they drag her over to uh, what is set up to look like a, a kind of altar room of some kind with drapes and stuff. Like it's it's. Uh, it's a real creepy look. And then Apophis walks out. Uh, by the way, I've been calling him Apophis this whole time. We're only going to learn his name in like the last 10 minutes of the episode. But let's, let's not pretend that I don't know that's what he is. Um, uh, can, so, I, uh, can I describe the energy I finally like nailed him with? Like I finally yeah, settled on? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, he is the douchebag in a, in a dance club, in like a nightclub. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. In like a, a, a disco era nightclub, specifically, he wears like ki- kind of gold member ish golden robes and stuff. That kind of like reminds me of that a little bit. Yeah, I get that. Uh, he mean mugs everybody. He doesn't tip. Uh, mm-hmm. He constantly like oh, hits for people's sure. shoulders. 
He's just that. Oh, a- yeah. He's that asshole at a dance club. That's his entire. He's vibe. that asshole. <laughs> he and Teal'c are both wearing very unconvincing toupees. Uh huh. <laughs> he's not like he's wearing a skull cap of some kind most of the time. We see him, which is weird, but because uh, that's what the Jaffa wear. Um, but his is golden. Um, so yeah, uh, he he sees her. Uh, struggling and like yelling and all, not, not not biting back because that's that happens later. Um, but but uh, he says, "Oh wow, full of life! You're very vivacious, I guess. You could be the vessel for my future queen." And he uses his hand device to kind of hypnotize her because that's a thing it does. I, oh yeah, we've seen that before. Um, and then the guards kind of strip her naked, which thankfully this time <laughs> the camera cuts around and we don't see it because it's a one, not 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 that uh, nudity in a vacuum in itself is wrong to have on a show, uh, but this is uh, the creepometer in this scene is through the roof, and it, it's going to get even worse later, uh, as the content warning at the beginning of this episode has warned. But we get a little sneak peek of that right here. Because uh, the guards, after she's been made catatonic by this device, uh, lay her down on that altar in the middle of the room. Uh, Apophis goes over and pulls a drape, and there's a lady sitting on a chair there, and he tells her something in alien. And uh, she walks out, and then that's when we get our first shot of a gold larva, everyone, because she parts her robes and uh, has a weirdly orgasmic look on her face as she's doing that because this is uh, someone thought they were this scene was sexy somehow but it's not it's just really creepy and kind of scary um so that that x in her belly that were which we saw on the the dead jaffa in the like the second scene of, or third scene uh back on earth uh opens up and in there we see a gross-looking alien slug thing, like looks like a snake, kinda. And it peeks out of there, looks around. Uh, pretty good puppetry right there, I have to say. It's not Jim Henson. Uh, the thing looks. It it reminded me of a really good big, in a creepy way. It reminded me of a really large mandarin shrimp. Mm-hmm. It's a little little bit that, but with kind of like the th- three, uh, like a. I don't know how to say it, but there's like three teeth on the front, and it kind of closes in a triangle kind of thing. Like a um, like a tri pincer. Uh, yeah, something like that. Tri- I think some insects have that. Tri maw. Yeah, tri maw. <laughs> yeah, but now that I look at it, I think it's actually a quadrama. There's like oh. four, which is probably easier to puppet or something. I don't know. Um, but it, it looks around at the lady that's laid down in front of it. Uh, and it kind of goes squeak, 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 and then it just like crawls back into the the lady's belly, and she she walks away, and Apophis goes back there, and he looks pretty disappointed, and he says that's a shame, and then he just uses his hand device thing to torture the lady to death, as we saw uh, Ra do in the movie to his underling, which is a uh, sorry Air Force Sergeant lady who never got a name. Uh, uh having like i said having a real bad day and it just ended for her uh first earth cat no not the first earth casualty but you know so she's dead now saying i would want to be a host to a gold lava Mm -hmm. larva not lava Mm -hmm. 
Well, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to be host to lava either. You don't want that. I've had pretty bad heartburn. I know how bad it is. <laughs> but why? Like, is there a reason given for why they're looking for a new body? Like, is it just for? I mean, the know? implication is. Uh, I, I don't know if that's really completely spelled out in this episode specifically, but like they grow in the bellies of Jafar, and then when they're mature, they have to come out of that pouch because that's like the next phase of their life cycle when they're like they've become adult uh, parasites, and then they have to go into a human host and like control their brain and stuff. So that that's the reason why like she uh, the this this gold has to find a host or. She's presumably going to die or something because she can't survive on, on like a Jaffa pouch anymore. Um, I think there might be, there, there's probably tech somewhere that lets them live or whatever. If they can slither around and stuff for a little bit, but also like the, the line between need to do that for their survival and want to do that because they're jerks is real thin. Okay. Cause I was assuming that the person who had it to begin with was also human but there no, are that that's a Jaffa. So the ones that have the the DX on their belly, they're all Jaffa. That that's what defines a Jaffa, like biologically, is they have a gold in their belly and they they have in that pouch. Okay. Uh, yeah. So Tilk is going to explain that later. But when they do that, it takes out their entire immune system and replaces it with a gold. So they become completely immune to all disease. But then if they take out the gold, they die. Uh, and like when the Jaffa uh, have to surrender their gold because it's mature, they like they have a whole system where they get a new larva put in them. It's not the end for them, so they're they're like they're always co- constantly breeding more in their bellies, basically. Uh, and the 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 gold themselves come from elsewhere, which we're gonna see uh, later on in the season. But uh, that's just their so like, the cocooning Jaffa, phase. The yeah. Jaffa already have that X. That's not from the larva. It's it's from like a ceremony that they do when they come of age, like cause when 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 the Jafar are kids, it's they're just humans. Uh, this is all going to be explained in, in later episodes, also. But yeah, basically they have to do a thing to put their first gold in them, and that's when they 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 take out all the all the human parts, but not all, but you know all the parts that that uh the all the, uh, the the immune system parts in the belly somehow not very clear. And then have a pouch put in for the gold and put the, put the gold in. Yeah. Okay. They remove their humor's pouch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Their their spleen is removed and uh, replaced by these things. Um, okay. So, yeah, also we see Tilk watching through, through all this, and he doesn't say anything, but he's looking... Uh, rather than just stoic you can see he's kind of st- his face is kind of starting to break down into des- into despair and like sadness he he clearly doesn't like what he's seeing and has real deep ethical dilemmas going on with his line of work at this point yeah they they could not overshadow this more or i guess illuminate it just anytime something yeah. bad is happening he's just like, staring yeah. Like, St- staring sadly and disapprovingly it's it's like and i i really like it because he doesn't say much but the 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 way he has a turn at the end of this episode if you didn't have these little bits along the way it would feel gratuitous but since you've seen him 
like acting this way, you 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 kind of get that he's ready to jump ship at the first opportunity, and like when you know when we're gonna see what happens with him later, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, the director's cut gives a lot more foreshadowing. Like it zooms in on Teal when Apophis uh, double parks. Uh, and they eat at a restaurant, and Apophis only leaves a 5% tip, and it zooms in on Teal'c's face. Oh, no, no. We, so so we've you esta- mentioned the director, Scott. <laughs> we've established Which that. is funny. He never tips. Sorry, go ahead. He would never absolutely. <laughs> he would never tip. No, Apophis, Apophis never tips, and Teal'c would be like, just zoom in and sad face about it. I, know, um, I would argue that 5% is more of a fuck you than zero. <laughs> That's certainly a debate uh, to be maybe. Had. That that that's a position. I don't know if we can settle that whole thing what's uh, a, right here on the Stargate podcast. What's it where you put the tip in the like the glass of water? Like you you, you maneuver the trap. Oh, for that's the even server? worse. That's an insult. And like or, it, it's bills. Like it's just a dollar, but it's it's a U.S. dollar to be clear. So, so or it's paper. Apophis puts the tip on the table at the start of the meal, and no matter what the server does, he takes bills <laughs> away right. from it yep. until there's nothing yep. left. Yeah, God. So you mentioned the director's cut, and that's funny because there is actually a director's cut of this episode specifically that they put out on DVD in 2009. Uh, like, they redid the CG effects to make them look better, and the other thing is they cut the more cringy scenes. Like, uh, the, the the bit where Carter talks about her repro- reproductive organs is cut from the director's cut, and uh, also the MacGyver joke is cut, which I frown upon they should have kept that in for the director's cut but anyway uh and also the extremely problematic scene that's going to happen in a few minutes is also cut from that um so if anyone at home is watching that dvd instead of uh the version that's on streaming uh you can disregard my content warning that i gave at the beginning of this um because that's not in there well, it's implied, I think. I, I haven't seen it, so I don't know exactly how they play it, if they just cut around the nudity or whatever. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, so we cut back to Earth again, where uh, Hammond is now meeting with... Uh, okay, he's meeting with everyone, yeah. Uh, O'Neill and Daniel and Carter and Major Samuels, and I think Kowalski is there too. Um, so, yeah, that's when he asks them, so what happened there? Uh yeah, Hammond wants to know, so is this raw? Do we have a raw? And then they go, well, no, that can't possibly be a raw because we did blow him up for sure. Uh, so that's when Daniel puts out his, I guess, informed hypothesis that the the other alien is just another god from the Egyptian uh, pantheon. Because, you know, there was more than one god, so why wouldn't there be more than one of them? Because... Uh, I guess, uh, yeah, he's just putting this together, I guess, w- once again from secondhand, because none of the people there have actually seen them, uh, except Hammond. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Daniel says, you know, other, other Egyptian gods, probably. And Kowalski, very funny guy, says, maybe Ross got a brother named Ray. Uh, very funny. He had to get us line in. And O'Neill says, yeah, great, awesome, thanks for the input. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so so Daniel goes back to the legend we saw in the movie about Ra's race di- was being on the verge of extinction. Uh, I guess he doesn't mention the part where Ra was the last of his kind because that gives us a little wiggle room to say, well, there were a bunch more, and when they found humans, they had a a new source of uh, 
of hosts to use and uh, thrive once again. He says, well, Ra did that, so there, there had to be more of them that did the same thing, so here we are. Uh, and since we know that there's a bunch of planets that have different stargates, uh, this could have happened like millions of times in millions of different places all over the galaxy uh, that we don't know about, and you sure would be swell and nice to be picked up for a series so that we could visit all these planets. Um, so, hang on. So he says that. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, so then Hammond asks O'Neill, uh, okay, so you've, you're, you're the one who's fought them the most and survived to talk about it. Uh, what if you encountered them again? Could you defend yourself? And O'Neill's like, well, we did beat them once, so it's possible. Uh, Hammond says, okay, so that's a maybe. Uh, then he asks Carter, uh, so we know that with the map room we found and the, the computer calculating the stellar drift and stuff, we're going to get new destinations for it, right? And Sam says, yep, as soon as she came back, I guess she got a team putting in those things into the computer, and now the computer's working into, uh, <laughs> into working out these, these, uh, coordinates, and she says, it should spit out two or three destinations a month, which is, real convenient for a TV schedule. Yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> this, it, it feels like this scene was written for the network executives to sell them on the show. Like, this is what the show's gonna be. We're gonna have other planets we can go to. Around uh, December, it might find the North Pole. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. So Hammond says, well, okay, we're in deep shit right now because we've I guess, uh, stirred the sleeping dragon in a matter of speaking. Um, we'd probably be better off if we hadn't found the Stargate at all. I mean, Abydos wouldn't be, but like, the, at least they wouldn't know about Earth. Um, and Sam points out that, yeah, well, Pandora's box is kind of open now. Uh, we, we, we opened it and we can't bury it again because they're just going to come to us, uh, in ships. Um, so, yeah, Hammond has a weird way of saying it, because he says, basically, his his plan would be to just bury the Stargate again and pretend like nothing happened. But the President of the United States agrees with our buddies here and thinks that we should have an SGC. So I guess uh, Clinton saw that and was like, yeah, awesome. <laughs> space space aliens and shit. We can send people there. Awesome. All That's right, cool. Here's my, um, here's my non-canon uh, assumption here. Uh-huh. Bill Clinton didn't say, hell yeah, put aliens, we should work with aliens. I think it was Hillary uh-huh. Clinton, because Hillary has gone on record <laughs> as being huge into UFOs. Uh, oh, yeah, she had. She was like an X-Files fan and yeah, stuff, yeah. I guess. Uh, nice. Yeah, that would be cool. I can't... I, I don't... Uh, he would tell her. Like It doesn't matter if someone tells him it's completely classified and he can't even tell his wife who was... Was she a senator already back then, or did she have a, like an official position? I don't know. During during um, his presidency, she would have been the first lady. Yeah, yeah, she was just the first lady, right? She wasn't the secretary or anything Correct. yet. Um. Anyway, um. So, uh, yeah. So basically, the president said, "Yeah, the, so uh, your mission is going to be to go out there and make contact with other alien cultures, try to find the ones with the cool guns and shit." Uh, get them to help us and maybe mount a resistance against the Goa'uld if we can. Uh, doesn't use that word because we don't know it yet, but there you go. 
uh, and it's going to be super classified. No one will know about it except people right here in this room and also the president and joint chiefs, which I guess doesn't even include the cabinet, all of it. Like the secretary of education doesn't know about the target or anything. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he says, basically, they have this whole plan already. Uh, O'Neill is going to lead a team named SG-1. Hey, that's the name of the show. Um, with Carter and Daniel immediately butts in and says, I want to be on that team. Uh, and, and Hammond is not into it. He's like, well, you, your work would be better spent staying here on Earth, translating stuff and everything. You know, you, and, you don't uh, have field experience. You're not a soldier. Yeah, exactly. You're... <laughs> Yeah, you're not even a soldier. Do you even know how to shoot a gun? He says, uh, no, but with all due respect, General, my wife is out there, and fuck you. And I'm gonna go and save her. And I guess that's a, that's a compelling enough argument appealing to, uh, wife guy, General Hammond himself. Actually, General Hammond is a granddaughter guy we're gonna see later on. He's, uh, Kind of like a little bit like Mike on uh, Breaking Bad and stuff. He he's a grandpa, and the the thing he cares the most about in the world is his grandkids. Um, so Hammond basically says, "Okay, I'll think about it." Uh, he turns to Kowalski and says, "Kowalski, you're you're gonna head SG two." Uh, he's real surprised at this. Uh, Hammond says that O'Neill gave him a strong recommendation. He stares back at O'Neill, says, "I had a moment of weakness." Uh, it's a pretty sweet moment because he's just—he's clearly really happy about this. Um, uh, and then, yeah, uh, someone comes in and hands uh, hands them a note that says, "Freddy has woken up," and they all bolt out of the room like Morpheus is fighting Neo <laughs> and uh, <laughs> go over to see Freddy, um, who's already on a laptop putting together the symbols he clearly saw and remembered. Because so. Uh, Good, uh, what do you call it? Good visual memory. Um, eidetic, eidetic memory. Yeah, I guess. Um, uh, so yeah, he's putting in the the symbols into the very nice interface that the laptop has. That has a photo of the Stargate and him being able to scroll through them and click on the right one. Uh, weirdly enough, like he puts in. The point of origin is the seventh symbol, which you would have seen on, seen on Abydos, and that doesn't look like the point of origin from the movie for Abydos. Uh, don't think about it too much, but I guess that's the symbol he saw. Um, so, yeah, you saw all that, and he just groans and nods because he can't talk because he has a tube in his mouth. So they immediately suit up and start... Uh, not quite Armageddon walking, but walking through the tunnels uh, with Major Samuels, who's briefing them. Sorry. Telling them. Um, the mission objectives is... Uh, sorry. Hang on. The primary... Like, there's, there's something about... I, I forget what the primary objective is. It's like recon and, like, fight off the aliens, I think. Uh, hang on. Okay, yeah. So, rescuing Shara is a secondary objective. Um... Doesn't even say what the primary objective is, I guess. Just to to go and kill the aliens. Uh, he says they have 20... Like, SG-2 is going to run a base camp at the Stargate and wait for them for 24 hours. Uh, if they're not back for uh, after 24 hours, they'll assume they've been captured. SG-2 is going to come back. Uh, they're going to close the iris and lock out the codes. Because, yeah, that's when he uh, explains that 
they have this little remote control thing that they have to use after opening the Stargate to send a signal through to tell them that uh, it's them. Basically, it's like a password thing so that they can open the iris for them. Uh, and then as they're in the gate room, uh, Hammond is up in the control room and talking into a mic and really re-explaining that, yo, the 24-hour limit is serious. You have one day to do this. And if you're not back, we're shutting this whole thing down. Uh, I guess I guess they're really up against the wall. He's got real high school principal energy. Oh yeah, he does. He has that with his little mic, like his voice coming over the PA and everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, like Samuel says, uh, he talks to Kowalski and says, "Kind of wish I was going with you." And Kowalski just like slaps it back in his face and says, "Yeah, well, I'm glad you're staying behind." Because no one likes that little fucker, and he's gonna be even more petty and hateable for a second. In a second, there, uh, he's got a Buttigieg face. Is what I can't get out of my head to describe him, uh, even though he looks like more angry and petty than that. Than that. Oh yeah. Okay. So then uh, you see a, like a close up of the of the probe thing of of the cart that they're ro- gonna roll through the Stargate, and you see that stenciled on it it says fred and way back in the first episode of this podcast i said that the probes had a different name in the movie than the series so in the movie it was also called fred and in this like early in the series it's called that but in the in the future it's going to be called a malp which i don't remember what it's called uh military something something probe i don't know uh but that's this just doesn't really matter it's just a little uh, trivia point i guess um, so they roll that thing through. Uh, we get shots from the movie again of the little interface showing the molecular deconstruction of the probe and then of the humans because I guess everyone's stepping through. We don't have any time to waste with the Stargate anymore. It's hell yeah. Sorry. I love every time yeah. they show this bad Microsoft uh, screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the the, the Stargate uh, sequence, yeah. It's, it's the shortened one we see this time where, where it just goes for a couple seconds and then goes whoosh. And they all come running out of that gate and uh, they once again mention that it's really cold. Uh, Daniel's glasses are all fucked up. Kowalski says, damn, it's cold. And they all have frost on their face and everything. Once again, that's never going to be a thing after this episode. And the whole thing where they're like propelled out of the gate rolling is also not going to be a thing. They're just going to walk out in the future, weirdly enough. Um, Daniel sneezes once again, uh, asks if anyone has a Kleenex, because, you know... He's um, comically allergic to everything. Yeah. It's not... That's barely barely going to be a point anymore. It's just, like, to tie it back to the movie where that was a thing. And there's going to be a couple episodes where it's a plot point and it has something to do with the technobabble of the episode that he has allergies. But, um... Aside from that, yeah. It's it's just a little character trait that's getting a little annoying at this point. Um, Not that people having allergies is annoying. It's horrible. I hate sneezing for nothing myself uh so we cut back to chulak okay so this is when the 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 really questionable scene that i'm that we've been talking around for this whole time starts because uh tilk goes back into the harem and points at Share, who's sitting by herself it really seems like you should be in the middle of the crowd and trying not to stand out and if you're sitting in the corner of the room he's gonna pick you it's just uh 
bad, bad uh, selection survival skills, I guess, with the situation. Uh, sorry, it's not quite the scene yet because we cut back to the Stargate, uh, which is on the same planet as this, uh, where the, the SG-1, uh, well, SG-1 and SG-2 are. Uh, Daniel says, uh, like, weirdly enough, there's no one else around there, but uh, Daniel says, well, this, the, the way the stones are in circles around this place, it's clearly some kind of, like, religious uh, loca- significance and like there's some people that worship the Stargate and so only says well we should probably get a move on before the worshippers or worshipees uh, come back and like bust them uh, Daniel is looking at the DHD and he's figuring out the coordinates to get back which is you know it's it's not going to be less of a thing in this episode than it was in the movie because they don't really mention it again after this point um, goes over to talk to Kowalski. Um, yeah, Kowalski says, "Yep, we're guarding the area." Uh, someone else has gone on patrol. He, he says he's found a trail uh, that they can maybe follow to find some something. I don't know. Uh, Carter says she's she's set up uh, claymores along along the ridge at ten meter intervals, and I think. I, I think only asks Kowalski if that's fine for a defense, and Kowalski like kind of gives a shitty little head shake and goes, "Yeah, that'll work." Like he still like doesn't trust Carter to do soldier things well, and she kind of stares back at him and gives him a like, "Yeah, it's anyway." Kowalski is kind of shitty still. Um, speaking of shitty, here we go. It's the scene with uh, we've all been waiting for. Uh, um, I, I'm I'm just gonna say if if a student had tricked me into showing this pilot episode and I had gotten to uh-huh. this point presuming a syndicated uh, sci-fi TV show like yeah you can't really swear it's probably gonna be uh-huh. PG thirteen I would definitely lose my job if I showed this episode yeah yeah f- for sure so to be fair like okay I, I i mean we don't have to be fair but it's it was a cable sci-fi show it was on showtime which was a premium cable network i don't know if it still exists or not and I, I never really knew of it much as, aside from stargate um so yeah when this first aired it was like on cable but you're right that it was everything up up to na- till now has been in that tv sci-fi syndicated star trek kind of niche where you expect pg to pg 13 stuff and but then some scumbag Showtime executive, uh, whose name I don't know if, if if their name has been revealed to the public at this point after all this time, but he was on the, on set that day and said basically, so we did have titties in this show to get people to watch this show, uh, and yeah, so it sucks real bad because they replay the same thing that we saw with the the the, the sergeant lady earlier. Uh, but with Charay, but this time they don't cut around the nudity at all. She's right there, completely in the buff, full frontal. Um, and okay, so it's time to get behind the scenes. Uh, wasn't scripted that way. Uh, the sh- the writers, showrunners, director, actors—they weren't into it either. It-, it was all the 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 executive I mentioned who asked for it, and then they told the actor playing Charay that they were going to cut around her nudity like they, they'd done with the other lady uh, while they were shooting. So so, uh, so she's like, okay, I'll do that. They're going to edit it out. It's going to be fine, whatever. I guess they need to have some shots where like implied nudity is necessary for this scene. 
then, so they shot the scene this way. Uh, then they didn't cut it out in editing, and they had her sign. So the contract that she had before shooting the scene specified that she would not have nudity uh, in the show, show up on screen. And so, like, they couldn't go forward with that contract. So then they pressured her after the fact to sign a different contract that did allow it. And she wasn't into it, but she ended up signing because, I don't know, she was, you know, young actress and everything. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there was and whatever. certainly no uh, power imbalance uh, at mm-hmm. all. It's real fucking gross. Uh, it's awful. I hate it. Uh, this is this this scene is a stain on the legacy of Stargate. It's good that it's it's cut off of the director's cut DVD, but that's not the version that got put on streaming. It's the version from the original DVD, which was a direct um, rip, uh, not rip, but a direct transfer from the original airing version because they didn't want the syndicated cut up into two parts version because the the when they put this episode on syndication, obviously it's in two separate episodes and they cut the nudity out. Uh, because ain't no way that it was going to air on networks, which is, you know, how it how syndication works. Uh, but basically, yeah, it's the exact same scene as before uh, with Sharae this time. Uh, the, 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 the larva comes out of the belly. and um, But this time, uh, so it comes out of the belly. She... Uh, Shari looks at it, clearly terrified out of her mind, but paralyzed. Uh, Apophis talks to it, which is also real creepy, but kind of funny, I guess. Uh, she asks, does it? Pl- does she please you, my love? And uh, the larva goes, Wah! so I guess that's a yes. Uh, crawls out of the belly. Um, it's real, real upsetting. That thing is gross, and uh, it's... Uh, they really play up the rape imagery in this, in this and the the nudity is making everything worse. Are we um, are we to presume the larvae have ears, or they just communicate telepathically? Or yeah, I I guess it's heard. Yeah, yeah, lar- I, I, larva I, I, famous for having ears and being tuned into hearing. Yeah, so pr- pr- I, I'm I'm gonna guess. Uh, Amonet, which is the name of this girl, uh, heard Apophis's question somehow because the larvas have some kind of hearing uh, organs. It was still um, plugged into the headphone jack of the. Oh, uh, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another explanation. Uh, I don't think Apophis understood this squeal back. It maybe interpreted it based on like old body language, since he is one himself. Um, that it means yes, but I mean, even we who are humans understand this from context, so it's not that hard to understand that it says yes. Um, we get another shot of Teal's real, of Teal's real sad face. Uh, he sneers a little bit at it even, like he, he is uh, way over the line in being over this shit at this point. Um, the thing crawls creepily up, uh, up her boobs, they turn her around, and she's so she's on her belly. It crawls up on her back. It's uh, it's uh, some heavily upsetting imagery once again. Um, it crawls all the way up to her neck, and then it fucking just dives right into her skin at the the base of her neck and burrows into her. Uh, and she screams, and it's penetrative, and it's everything you hate to see. And uh, yeah. Uh, 
don't if that's why that's why I put the content warning because uh, if you if you are a victim of rape or anything, uh, this might be triggering to you, and uh, so we don't want that. And uh, don't blame you if you decided to skip over the scene. Uh, the only thing you need to know is uh, the Goa will pick Sharae as a host, and we can move on from here. Thankfully, uh, not excusing it. Uh, when I say move on, it's not pretend it didn't happen. Just uh, glad I'm not looking at it anymore. Um. All right. For, We're back for its, in the. F- if for its intended purpose, that scene could not mm-hmm. be less sexy. Oh yeah, it's not. So that that's the thing. It's it it's played extremely scary and creepy, and like you're put, like the point of view character is the victim in this scene. So it's like it's shot like a horror movie, but the way this executive was like, let's have some boobies on screen because it's going to be sexy. It's absolutely not sexy. Like. If I'm gonna say it, if you beat off to this scene, you're uh, probably a psychopath. So, um, it's bad. I mean, uh, unless you're a really young teen who gets these boobies whenever he wants, no judgment there, but. Uh, you, you know, know there, there, there's about a thousand websites online. There, there's yeah, better there, options. Now, now there are. I, I'm just thinking back in 97. Uh, even then, yeah, it's, it's, it's not sexy. It's, it's. Deeply, deeply fucked up. Yeah, yeah back Ugh. in the 90s, can you just be decent and watch Baywatch or X-Files? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Get um, the Sears catalog. <laughs> yep. So, thankfully, we're safe from all this by cutting back to the U.S. military on foreign soil. Um, <laughs> who are walking around with their little Fred um, on the trail that the other guy mentioned. Uh, they once again... Uh, mentioned the stakes again to make sure the audience doesn't forget that they have 24 hours or I guess, I, I don't know how many hours they have left. The, 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 does he say it? I forget. 20 hours. So it's it's already been 4 hours I guess. Uh, they've been walking for a while. Um, he says, okay, so that's far as that's as far as SG2 gets from the gate. Uh, so SG1 has to go on forward and he says, okay, if we're not back in 20 hours um, and Kowalski says, uh, well, I'm gonna go come and save you then. And Nolan says, no, that's not the orders. You have to go back through the gate at that point because our thing is gonna be locked and we're gonna be stuck here and you, we don't want you to be stuck, so you need to go back. Uh, so says, all right, salutes him. Because it is, after all, a direct order from a superior officer, but, you know, you know how orders work on TV. So... They walk around a bit. Uh, we get some more exposition to remind us from the movie that Share was a gift given to Daniel by Kasuf, because uh, Sam asks Daniel how he met her, and he explains all of that. Um, <laughs> and just when Sam is about to get in his face and say, well, wait, you accepted that? And Daniel doesn't get to explain, because uh, O'Neill says, wait, shut up, there's some people over there. Um, so they go over and hide in the trees. Uh, very. Uh, by, by the way, we haven't really noted it. Uh, this is the first Vancouver planet of the show right there. Uh, that, that, that lush uh, redwood West Coast forest we're going to see on every single planet in the galaxy. Uh, it's right there. It it's could not of, look full of green. more like Vancouver. Oh, it looks extremely like Vancouver. Like, anytime you see a TV show that's shot there, you can immediately tell, because they always take place in forests like this. Uh, it looks like a really shitty day, too. It's really overcast and gray. Um, yeah. 
Um, so uh, they they see those uh, those priests walking around on the trail, um, and Onil is like, okay, so we probably need to flank them to like take them by surprise or something. And then Daniel immediately runs out right in front of them and says hi to them. Good, good, uh, <laughs> good tactic right there. Uh, Onil says, ah, oh, the man never changes. Um, he knew if he didn't introduce himself first, some sort of pack animal was going to drag him around for a while. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want that. Like in the desert is one thing; in the forest, like there's all sorts of like sharp sticks and shit. That's it's a bad time. Um, okay, so he starts talking to them. He says, "We all came through the Stargate, and then like for some reason, these people don't understand what he's saying, even though uh, there's no real reason to believe that." their language is different than the one on Abydos. And uh, and the, we've seen, like, Apophis and Teal'c and others speak English anyway, so you'd think the translation convention would be in effect here. But I guess it's not, because those priests don't immediately understand what he's talking about. And he says, uh, we came through the Chapa Eye, because we've heard that that's the, the word for Stargate in their language. And they all go, oh, Chapai! And they, they bow, because once again, they think that these people are also ghouls, because they've never seen Earth equipment. Um, uh, and then I was like, oh, no, not again. Uh, then, like, O'Neill and, and Carter start pointing their guns at them, and Daniel points out, yeah, maybe we shouldn't shoot these people, even though, like, they are in pretty much provably hostile territory at this point, but uh, I guess Abydos could have been called that, and not everyone on there was hostile. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, they, they go back and, and speak to this priest monk guy uh, who takes off his hood and shows us that he has a tattoo on his forehead like uh, like the Jaffa, but it's it's only ink and that gold the way Teal'c's is, so that, so that tells us that this guy is also a Jaffa, um, but he's a, a, a monk or a priest instead of a warrior, of a warrior I guess. Um, he says some stuff in alien language. Uh, Daniel understands the word choose, uh, so he says, okay, he wants to know if we're here to choose. And he just like, waves his hand and goes, yeah, okay, whatever, I guess. Uh, Daniel's like, yeah, sure, we can choose. Choosing is good. Please take us to choosing. Uh, he tries to explain. Uh, he tries to explain to O'Neill that the, the 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 language is a derivation of Arabic, which I guess that's another language from the region of Egypt. But uh, that's the that's the reason why it's not the same language as an as an Abydos. And once again, it's not going to be a factor anymore after this. It's just weird. I guess they wanted to remake the the scene where they first meet the the people in Abydos uh, without the chocolate bar this time, but. Uh, they just wanted Daniel to do some Daniel stuff. Um, so he uh, he asks uh, them to take them to something, and he does like a kind of house shape with his hands. Um, and the guy nods and says, yeah, 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 uh, Chulak, Chulak, which is, I guess it's the name of the planet, but he says he's taking them to Chulak, which is, I guess, the name of the city they're going to. Uh, I'm wondering at this point if it's like a Canada or Quebec kind of thing where they just misunderstood what natives were telling them and decided to name the whole place after it. Um, Maybe it just means town or something. But yeah, this is uh, this planet is Chulak, and he's pointing at the city and saying Chulak. So Chulak, Chulak's all around. Um, Anyway, so they walk up to a, a nice matte painting city. They point at it. They start 
walking towards it. Uh, Long cut. Yeah, there's a a wide shot of them walking towards it. Okay, yeah, so we cut to a closer cut where it looks like a a matte painting of a Roman-type city um, with a temple with columns and stuff in the back. And then we cut to their set of the inside of this, which is clearly the exact same set as where the altar was with the gold rape scene earlier, but it's been redecorated to be more like of a feast scene. Um, They have people bringing in big plates of food uh, and people sitting around a low table. Uh, So, yeah. uh, So, our people enter the scene. Uh, The priest introduces them with a big smile on his face and everyone looks really impressed and pleased. Um, so yeah, they, they sit down to eat of this feast. Uh, we see that the, the other people around the table are also presumably, uh, Jafar. I guess the, the, I guess what, what we're, um, what we understand from this scene is, uh, that there's the, you know, the, the choosing of Amanet's host is, uh, a kind of festival or celebration among them. And they thought that these were visiting Gua'uld from a different planet, that came to uh, to witness it, uh, and they, they're having a big feast to celebrate their the not the birth, but their the re- the reveal of their new queens, their 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 new queen, I guess, because these are, I guess, the higher class of Jaffa that are, you know, they're still slaves to the gold, but uh, they're <laughs> they're comfortable, so they're fine with it. Um, all right, so. We get a guy who has a big old horn. Uh, he, he blows into it. Uh, this thing is like huge. It goes all the way around his arm. Everyone bows. Daniel also bows, and they, they kind of stare at him. And, and he says, "Well, when in Rome." Uh, so yeah, they, they they should do the same thing as the people there to not stand out. Uh, so yeah, you see the Jaffa soldiers enter this room. And including Teal, and then Apophis walks in with Share next to him in uh, a headdress that M really wanted us to say looks a lot like Rita Repulsa's hella hat, I guess. It's a it's a big hat with with two like things on the side. I, I, I see the resemblance. It has the same and it projects the same energy as Rita's uh, headgear. Um, I would have gone with Amidala. Yeah, it's it's also got that. It's 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 really regal and uh, excessive, I guess. Uh, I don't think Apophis names her at this point, so I think sorry. Uh, yes, she's. I don't think she's named in this episode, but uh, she's Amanet, and Apophis says, "Behold, your queen!" and uh, takes the veil off her face, and Daniel sees her and goes, "Wait, that's Charé," and he. Uh, he gets up and starts running towards them, and Apophis goes, hey, bow before your queen. Uh, and he doesn't do that. He tries to talk to her, and uh, we see her eyes glowing. So I, I, have, a, and, I have a question. Mm-hmm? Is the indirect moral of this pilot that if you go through a Stargate back to Earth, you will lose your relationship with your wife? <laughs> that does happen, doesn't it? It happens to I O'Neill, mean, it happens to Jackson. It's, yeah, and it, I mean, 
Okay, it's uh, <laughs> I'm gonna say it. It also happens to Tilk, but uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's that's a that's kind of a weird running theme, huh? You find you find the team like there's a, there's a whole found family aspect to it, and like in the process, you kind of lose your your original biological family or you know, uh, whatever you call your partner. Listen, I'm a, um, I'm a big fan. We're watching a show uh, centered on a portal of divorce. What a, what a terrible <laughs> artifact. Uh, yeah, that, that's what the hieroglyphs, that, that's what Richard Kind translated on the, the board. A portal of divorce. No, Stargate. Um, they should have left. The old alimony pony. They should have left it buried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... So, uh, yeah, so Apophis uses, uh, I think actually she does, no, Apophis uh, is the one who uses his hand device to uh, send a big old shockwave at Daniel to slam him against the wall and knock him out. Uh, only he'll take same at Apophis, but uh, Amonet uh, steps in front of him to shield him with her body, uh, so of course Oniel doesn't shoot, and Jafar behind him knocks him out with his staff. Uh, a real but- Joker and Hurley couple. Uh-huh. I mean, not really, because anyway, it's not it's not really the same relationship. But we don't see much of Amanet's uh, personality coming up. I guess uh, Jackson she's, she's disrespected kind of the queen by not bowing. Oh, oh yeah, okay. You're 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 talking Suicide Squad, uh, Joker and Harley, <laughs> the, the worst version of these characters. Um, so, uh, we, we cut back up on Earth where Hammond has ordered himself some exposition from uh, Samuels, who comes up and asks him, so, what if it's past 24 hours and we get the right code? And Samuels, a little too gleefully, says, well, then we couldn't be sure it wasn't the aliens or our people being tortured or something, so we can't possibly take the chance. You know, he says, we should just seal the Stargate right now, frankly. And Hammond asks, how much time do they have left? And Samuel says, just under two hours, which, wow, they've either walked a long time or been knocked out a, a long time because it was 20 hours when they left Kowalski on the trail. Um, I guess it's a big planet. They could have taken like a really long hike to get there. They could have. But considering they're going to be back to the Stargate in less than two hours, I don't think so. Kind of feels like the writers lose track of the time. Yeah, it's almost like the time is just a progress bar to doom that we're supposed. That's just there to raise the tension or something. Yeah, I mean, even after we hear that they have two hours left, it feels like things take a lot longer than two hours. Yeah, it does because like a whole lot of things happen uh, coming up in the last twenty six minutes of this episode. Um, So we cut back to that. cell pit we saw earlier uh, where Daniel is waking up from having been knocked out for 18 hours apparently uh, which is, he should see a neurologist about that, that sounds like a concussion it's pretty bad Um, uh, so yeah uh, he's the last one to wake up Uh, Onya says hey look who who we found and Skara is there obviously because we saw uh, earlier uh, so they help Daniel sit down because he's still a little shaky. Um, so Daniel says, "Okay, listen. Uh, yeah, the Scara says uh, they told him they, they told him about Share, and Daniel says, "Okay, listen. We can help her. We can do this. We can save her." Uh, and Daniel says, "Hey, listen. Uh, 
we're kind of fucked here anyway because we're prisoners here and we just have 90 minutes left until they seal the gate there's almost no way we can possibly make it back there in time so we're kind of fucked we just need to figure out a way to survive here um and then Teal'c uh in full snake armor grabs O'Neill's arm from off screen and pulls him up to his feet and asks him uh he looks at his watch on his wrist and asks him what is this and uh, O'Neill says it's a watch and Teal'c looks at it real close and says, this is not Gua'uld technology. Uh, where are you from? Uh, so uh, O'Neill says, Earth. And then he says, Chicago, if you want to be... And then Teal'c interrupts him. He says, I don't understand what you're talking about. Show me where you're from. Uh, which is uh, where Daniel takes the cue to draw Earth's point of origin in the sand, which is uh, apparently all Teal'c needed to hear because he kind of put those dots together that it would, they were from the planet he was at earlier where, where he was real impressed by their technology. Um, so he wipes the, the symbol from the, from, the, from the ground and closes his helmet back up and walks away from there. Uh, when, he, when he asked, this uh, is not ghoul technology, all I heard was, uh, we did not steal this. This is not ours. <laughs> yeah, we haven't stolen this yet, so I'm going I'm to take this and bring it to Apophis and we're going to look at it. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we get a shot of the rising suns and Chulak, and I have to call bullshit on this. It it doesn't look like it's a planet that can possibly have two suns. It's way too cold looking for that to be possible. <laughs> like a, a binary star system would be like inhabitable realistically, but if you're in a sci-fi thing, come on. Like they they comment on how the the night was freezing cold. Uh, so uh, they, I guess they go from freezing cold to boiling hot instantly, weirdly enough. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing to decide to have on this planet when you're calm. When, you, when it looks like a real shitty November Vancouver day and you're exp- uh, explicitly commenting on how cold it is, uh, it's weird. Yeah, like, I, I mean, the, the... the desert can get cold. It's, it's known for getting cold yeah. at night. But I guess if there were yeah. two suns... What if, yeah. what if there's just, I mean, first of all... What if there's just sorry. two suns during the day? Like, if they both set yeah. at the same time? Yeah, I guess it's just two half-suns or something, and they add up to, like, the, the warmth of a regular sun. But even then, like, even discounting how the, the, the orbit of the planet would be so weird, and this season would be weird, and what if the two suns aren't close enough, and you orbit only one sun, and you end up between the two suns? That's, that's, that's like the hell season of the year, I guess. Um, anyway, I'm overthinking this. It's just sci-fi. Um, so, yeah, uh, so the, the other guy who's there, he says, uh, the, the deadline's almost up, so I guess we are got to get ready to dial back the gate. And Kowalski refuses, basically. He says, there's, there's no way we're going to leave here without them. Come on, we're going to help them somehow. Um, even though he doesn't exactly go and rescue them at this point. Um so yeah, we we cut back to that prison cell, um, and oh yeah, the, so this is when like Sam says, so Ra isn't dead after all, because I guess she saw him and thought he was Ra because his eyes glowed, uh, but then Daniel says, no, that wasn't Ra, because first of all, he's seen Ra, and he, he didn't look like that. Uh, he says, yeah, that was Apophis, because uh, Daniel, being the Egyptologist he is. Uh, knows that um, snake god in in the Egyptian mythology, mythology sorry, is uh, is Apophis, and uh, 
so, like a, a point of uh, interest is that in the mythology, Apophis and Ra are like rivals and they fight each other. So, uh, thing to keep in mind regarding uh, galactic politics, because that, that aspect is also accurate. Um, you can imagine that Apophis is moving into the power vacuum left by Ra not, now that he's dead because he was his, his adversary. Um, it's going to be a whole lot of uh, space politics coming up in the in future seasons. Um, a gate of thrones, if you will. Yeah, you could say that. A divorce <laughs> not, not quite. gate of thrones. Uh huh. Divorce gate of thrones. Of course, that makes sense. You just say that to someone, and they're going to know exactly what you're talking about out of context. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, uh, Skara is like is, is trying to talk to O'Neill and telling him, so we're going to fight them and save my sister, right? And O'Neill says, you know, I'd like to, kid, but uh, we're kind of up against the creek here. Uh, up against the wall or up shit creek, I guess. I mixed two things. Um, uh, yeah, they, they don't have weapons. They're prisoners. These people have big laser sticks. Uh, speaking of the people with the big laser sticks, the, the gates open again. They walk back in. Tilk took off his helmet, I guess, because we get to see his face again. Um, he he yells at everyone to... I, I guess he's telling them to, like... Uh, oh, yeah, Skara says... Um, he translates for Tilk. He says, they're going to choose the children of the gods. So, uh, actually, they only choose one at this point, but uh, that's, that's your episode title right there. That's where it came from. Um... So they have this big palanquin that they carry in, uh, and once again, Apophis is in there. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, he walks out. I think Amonet is there too. Um, yep, she's right there. Does he name her at this point? Share. So Daniel, once again, is about ready to go aggro and do something stupid. Um, uh, did, uh, Jack and Sam literally hold his arms back to prevent him from jumping forward and getting him, them killed uh, all over again. Uh, so, yeah, so the Jaffa start going through the crowd and, like, make, forcing people to kneel in front of everyone. Um, so they start going through... Uh, Skara reluctantly kneels. Uh, so, so the Jaffa pick up like kids and like younger people and just bring them over to these other priest-looking guys uh, and like lift them up to present them and they, like they kind of inspect them and, and the priests uh, kind of like decide who who gets to be another gold host, I guess. Um, he, they reject a whole bunch. Oh yeah, they they do choose more than one because there's a, this other lady is chosen. So I guess. Uh, children is uh, accurate. Um, uh, da, 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 da. You see Apophis and Amonet looking at everything. Um, this other priest guy with a real fancy headdress uh, walks right in front of Daniel, and Daniel like kind of like reaches out to him and starts uh, to attract his attention. Uh, and he, he he wants to ask him a question, like, if you chose me, how much of me would I still be? Because um, he really wants someone to know, to tell him that 
the person who's the host uh, still survives under all of this because he wants to know that there's still hope for Sharae. And you see like a shot of Teal kind of quietly and sadly uh, shaking his head no. And O'Neill sees that, which is important. Um, so the, the the headdress guy says, we choose. And then the camera like does a bait and switch because it's centered on Daniel, but it whips up to Skara and he says, him. And they pick up Skara and he screams. Um, and now O'Neill is pissed also because uh, uh, he starts yelling after Skara. He gets whacked in the face again for, for his trouble. Uh, once again, bad times for everyone. Um, then like the Jaffa start gathering back up again and Apophis tells them to just kill everyone else in the room they, he doesn't need anyone any of them anymore so complete panic and pandemonium all the prisoners starts start running to the back of the room as the Jaffa line up to just shoot him down um and Teal you know goes walks in front to lead them because he's the I guess no he walks right up to in front of them anyway he's he's their leader so of course, he's going to lead this whole execution, uh, this firing squad. Uh, he looks like he's about to break down into tears at this point because he really, uh, once again, Christopher Judge, he- hell of a face actor, uh, on top of being a great voice actor, because he, you, you can, you can tell in his face that he's about ready to, to, to give up this life, um, which like O'Neill picks up on because he yells at him. Many have said that. But you are the first I believe could do it. He tosses him his weapon, and they all—they both just start shooting all the other Jaffa. Uh, and it's great. I love the scene when when Teal uh, has his it, face turn right there. It it uh, sure seems great. like the two of them take out five guys, like a lot of guys. Yeah. Like yeah, I mean. Teal'c is the first Prime, so he's like the best Jaffa on this planet, presumably. He's the one with the most experience, and O'Neill has, you know, Earth training and has used this before, I guess, and the other Jaffa are just slaves, I don't know, they, they're just cannon fodder, <laughs> so they, 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 they fall down pretty easily. Also, I think they start shooting at the crowd instead of at the two guys with the staffs, so that's not very tactically sound, but also didn't, they didn't expect Teal'c to shoot at them so, uh, element of surprise is on their side. Uh, we gotta cut to our friend, the caveman right there, <laughs> who's, I, I'm gonna guess, is the one you meant when you said that one of the prisoners stands out. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure if he was the same one I see later, because it's like, in that close-up, <laughs> it looks like uh, half his head is, uh, well, obviously a wig. <laughs> Not very well blended. Yeah, I think it's the same guy because I I remember reading that there's an earlier script, uh, uh, an earlier draft of the script of this episode where this guy had a bigger role in it and it was kind of reduced to to just being an extra, but they still had him put on the costume that they'd prepared for this character, and that's why he stands out so much. Yeah, he's gonna stand out even more like in the like the last scene of this episode. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, so uh, O'Neill and Teal have uh, finished shooting all the Jaffa in the room. They kind of shoot at the grate to scare the guards that are just aside, outside of it to go away. Uh, then they turn around and shoot a big hole in the wall so that everyone can escape this place. Um, 
anyone who survived anyway, because I guess a bunch of the prisoners were also shot dead just now. Um, but yeah, they all uh, kind of just gather and squeeze through that hole, uh, start running out of there. Uh, we get like Tilk overlooking uh, the dead, his former dead comrades that he just killed. He kind of rips his chest plate off of his armor and drops it to the ground and uh, looks around and O'Neill, of course, just look, looks at him and says, come on, come with us. And he says, well, uh, I, I kind of like, I don't have anywhere to go now because I just betrayed uh, my people. So, of course, I can't stay here either. I, uh, I, O'Neill says, I, yeah. I casually committed imperial treason. Uh-huh. Yep. I just, I just became, uh, instantly became Chulak's most wanted. Um so O'Neill says, yeah, well, you just saved our lives, so I'm going to vouch for you. You can come with us. Okay, cool. All right. Um, uh, okay, start so, leaving. Yeah, they start leaving. So the, then they, now that they have Tilk with them, he gets to expose it to them a little bit. Uh, O'Neill asks him where they're going to take Skara, and he says, to the Stargate, of course. Uh, they will return home, which I don't know what home is. It's another planet, I guess, because that's where Apophis lives. He doesn't live with his Jaffa, which I guess makes sense. Uh, we, we get, uh, like a, a crowd shot of all the, the prisoners running, and one of them, uh, has a little, like, Chinese hat on. He looks, it, it's kind of hat, it's the hat from, uh, an outfit from one of those, uh, jumping vampires. I don't remember how they're called in Chinese, but, that's that's the other prisoner that really stood out to me. They 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 it, there's something like Star Wars Cantina scene about how they dressed up all these different prisoners in different outfits to signify that they came from different planets of different cultures. And some of them, like one of them, has like spikes on on their head. Uh, a couple of them seem to have like beanies or like hats with floppy ears or something. I guess they came from a winter planet, but they look like they came from Canada. Um, yeah, winter planet. Yeah, it, you know infamous. Canada, the winter planet. Yeah, Hoth. Yeah, <laughs> Hoth, exactly. Um, so yeah, we cut back to Earth. Uh, Samuel says they have just under an hour for the deadline. We should have heard of them by now, because uh, he really wants to like fuck him over and close it now. Uh, Hammond says, you know, uh, there's still time. Let's give him until the last minute. Uh, okay, so we cut back to Chulak, and we have, like, the, 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 the whole party of escaped prisoners walking around, including caveman guy. Um, uh, so they say, yeah, we lost a few people on the way here. Uh, we, we, we have a little less than an hour. Uh, Teal tells them, well, the people who got left behind is going to be hunted down and killed, sorry. Because, uh, uh, you know... Apophis, uh, anyone who doesn't serve the gods gets to be killed. Uh, and only asks, so what are you then? And uh, Teal says, well, that's when he explains what a Jaffa is. Uh, he says, I am a Jaffa, bred to serve that they may live. Um, super soldier. He's a super soldier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they ask for clarifications, and he goes, okay. Opens a shirt, shows his pouch thing with the guaul in it. He says, yeah, so I have one of those in my belly, for starters. Uh, O'Neill says, oh, shit, what is that? Uh, Tilk says, it's a, it's a baby Gua'uld. Uh, so I, I've, I've had one in my pouch since I've been a, a child, like all the other Jaffa. And um, so O'Neill says, well, okay, uh, get rid of it. 
uh, Teal'c says, well, no, can't really do that because it's giving me a long life and perfect health, but also if I removed it, I would die because I don't have... He doesn't say it then, but he doesn't have an immune system outside of it, so first virus he encounters would just kill him. Um, which really sucks, but anyway, he, he he can just keep the gold in there. Yeah. Uh, and he's going to be fine for a bit until it matures anyway. Um, so, so, uh, sounds like a later problem. Uh, so sounds like a problem for later Teal'c, like somewhere around season four or five Teal'c. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, we see the Stargate, and there's a ship that moves up to the top of it, which is well, n- not one of the pyramid ships, but like a, a glider that, weirdly enough, like has a different shape, because we're going to see it morphing a little bit later. Um so they, uh, uh, while this is happening, the the prisoner party is uh, reaching the area also. And Teal takes one aside for a second and says, "You know, uh, that kid is gone. He's a gold now. You you don't you can't free you can't rescue him anymore." Uh, and he says, "Nope, not hearing that. Uh, that's because that's that that kid that that's my son that that I imprinted upon, kind of. And I'm gonna like I want to free him now." Um, so I'm going to have to put a pin in that and think of a way to do that later because uh can't do much if we don't even have them with us. Um, so, yeah, we see the, the ring teleporter that we last saw in the movie uh, open on that uh, ship that's hovering above the Stargate and beams down uh, our buddy Skara. Um, well, I, I could say it right now. He's Chlorel now because... Uh, He's been taken. He's a gold too, uh, along the same as Shari. Um, sucks. Bad times for everyone. Um, so yeah, and then, and then the rings uh, go off again, and there's Apophis and Amonet, and uh, there are Jaffa all around them. Um, and then, and then, the, like, yeah, that's, and then, like, the ship they were in kind of morphs and turns into more of a boomerang shape, and you see these two cannons come out of it. So I guess it's like. It's going into battle mode, weirdly enough. It's it's weird. I don't think we're going to see those ships do that again after that, because they have different ships for transports, usually. Um, but yeah, uh, so the, that ship starts, like, doing a bombing run on the running prisoners. Uh, once again, real bad time. We get a cool CG shot of the ship going off into the distance, go, climbing up into the air, and then uh, doing kind of kind of a U-turn and coming back to bomb them some more. Uh, they shoot back at it with the staffs. It doesn't do much to it. Uh, the ship shoots them a little bit again. Um, you see a bunch of the prisoners die. Is this when? I forget. Yeah, uh, so Carter is like, uh, we're kind of fucked here. Uh, we're being bombarded and the Stargate is guarded. We don't have anywhere to go. Uh, so we're at the Stargate now with Apophis and gang. And Apophis dials the Stargate once again. Uh, we see a couple of the symbols he puts in, but no one is there to see them, so no way to know which planet he's going to. Um, he turns it on. They kind of... I think, like, before Apophis walks through... Yeah, so the ship is coming back to uh, blow them to oblivion one, once and for all. And this is when I think... Yeah, 
Kowalski has a big old rocket launcher and he just shoots that thing down. And we get to see it crash in a big fireball. And Apophis gets to see that before he walks to the Stargate. Yeah. And he's not happy, but I guess he's escaping to fight another day with his wife. Um, Kowalski might be my MVP of the second half of this episode. <laughs> yeah, well, he's pretty great. I mean, the the you know, he's kind of shitty and sexist, but uh, especially in the first half of it. But the way he hangs around and decides not to go back to Earth and saves them and shoots a big rocket launcher at a ship. You gotta love it. Uh, which man make- knows how to shoot a stinger. Dude knows how to shoot a stinger, and uh, you know what else knows how to shoot a stinger? Uh, what's going to happen to him in a couple of minutes? Um, so, yeah, uh, they, they, they get back together. They say, uh, how, how, so what's going on with the Stargate? It's, it's, uh, he says there's, there's like a couple people, a uh, dozen people there that are guarding it, and only asks about Skara, and he says, well, Skara's right there with them. Um, so like ah shit uh so kowalski reminds us that they don't have much time left before they lock out the the iris code um so they walk up to the top of the ridge that we saw earlier from the stargate's point of view uh and they get there just in time to see the stargate open and the last people step through it including skara who uh turns back at them i th- i think this o'neill yell yeah okay o'neill starts running full tilt towards them uh, and yelling at them, uh, Skara, Skara, and Skara, quote unquote, uh, turns around and walks back towards him. And you see him for a second kind of smile at him. And for a second, you think, ah, maybe Skara's still fine. But then he scowls, his eyes glows, he pulls out the gold hand weapon and he blasts O'Neill to the ground. So sorry, Skara is also now a gold. Um, so that's, once again, they really like, pulled all the rugs out from <laughs> under our main characters' feet to give them some motivation in the first episode of the series, because now O'Neill wants to get Skara, and uh, Daniel wants to get Sharae, and Teal'c wants to free his people and everything and help them and run away from the place where he is now most wanted, and, and, and Carter's Carter there. is just hanging... <laughs> Carter's there, and she doesn't get a motivation yet, because she's a woman, and the writers didn't know what to do with that. Uh, but she's there, she does science. And I mean, I mean, the woman. one we would just substitute is, she's in it for the thrill of adventure. The, yeah, or the, the professionalism of being a doctor and a captain at the same time. Uh, she's gonna get a pretty major like story arc of her own in season two, but it's she's kind of backburner and she gets a bunch of focus in in Planet of the Week episodes, but she doesn't really get like a strong arc in season one, which is kind of a shame. Um, but anyway, uh, so they run over there. Daniel asks Tony if he saw the symbols. Uh, he didn't because he was too busy being knocked to the ground. Um, so we cut back to Earth, and Samuel's right. Probably, I bet the very second that the timer ran out, just like left to his feet and skipped over to Hammond's office and put on his sad face and pretended to be sad. He says, well, the timer is over, sir, so we should probably strand them on this planet forever now. Yeah. And bury the Stargate forever. Because uh, he's a little shit. Um, so, yeah, at this point, so uh, our friends are at the Stargate and all they have to do is dial home. 
but like you have uh, a couple of the soldiers are on top of the ridge looking outwards and they see a bunch of staff weapons coming out through the the trees and stuff so they know that the Jafar are almost there to attack them um, so they go okay well we gotta dial the gate right now get everyone through it and defend this place until everyone can escape it's a real Starcraft mission kind of yeah, set up here yeah. <laughs> there's, there's literally at least one Star, Starcraft mission where it's you have to survive until all the people have gone through the gate to another planet that's in Broodwar I think it's a Protoss mission, anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, Kowalski says, uh, Carter, you should probably get on, uh, go great, get the remote to detonate the claymores when it's time, which, by the way, I've, I think claymores are actually uh, pressure sensitive, and the one with the remote control is C4. It's a minor point, but there you go. Um, You're going to claim to know more than a Dr. Captain? Listen, I've played Metal Gear. I know these things. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so uh, Daniel has to take his little notebook out to dial the gate out, which I guess he's not fully confident that he knows the symbols by heart yet. Um, so let's just build some tension, because we have like a ticking time bomb on both ends of the thing, because on Earth they're going to lock them out, and on Chulak they're being attacked by Jaffa. Um so you see Carter like take cover behind a no that's Kowalski taking cover behind a rock because uh, Carter is with Daniel trying to figure out the symbols. Uh, he picks up the little detonators for the claymores and uh, waits for the signal to to uh, blow them up. Uh, on the ridge, the the two soldiers that are there hit the ground and start shooting at the coming Jaffa. Uh, so we cut back to Earth now, where Samuel's like, "Come on." And is like, okay, fine, fine, lock them out. He's not happy about it. Um, so the, Samuels walks back down the stairs to lock out this whole thing. Uh, meanwhile, Daniel's like, he has, he's finally found the little sheet of paper he was looking for. He has a really funny moment where he pulls it out and he's like laughing and smiling. Ha ha, that's the right piece of paper. Um, and he starts dialing the gate. Um, so yeah, they're shooting, 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 shooting. Um, yeah, it's at, at this point it's just uh, tension building, I guess, because there, there's not much to talk about. Dial Daniel finishes dialing the gate; it opens. We cut back to Earth, where they, of course, get uh, the, the gate opens on their side. Uh, Hammond uh, Samuels tells Hammond, "Hey, uh, the Stargate just opened," and Hammond says, "Oh, wait, forget what I said about locking them out. Actually, open it." Uh, don't seal the gate. Uh, let's wait if to see if they send their code and then let them through. Um, Samuel says... Uh, Hammond asks if they have the, the remote signal yet. Uh, Walter says, nope, we don't have it yet. Um, so we see that the iris is closed and on the other side, uh, Carter is dialing the thing on her wrist, a uh, remote control thing. Uh, and then we cut back to Earth, where we see on the computer that there's a little big old alert window that pops up that says, "Hey, we got the ident I we got an ID code for SG1, so we know it's legit." So they open the iris um, right in the nick of time as they're starting to step through the gate. I think Daniel and Sam are the first through. Um, yeah, so so everyone starts. Uh, running out through the gate while taking cover because they're taking fire from the Jaffa at the same time. It's pretty tense. 
uh, on Earth, uh, all the soldiers have the guns pointed at the Stargate, and just in case any bad guys do step through. Uh, so Carter step, uh, Car- Carter tumbles through and like gets to tell them to, hey, hold your fire, We're, we have a bunch of refugees coming over, which is uh, gonna be a hell of a thing to like sort this out because uh, like we can barely deal with refugees from another country with not not physically but procedurally because we just hate foreigners so much and now we have uh, people from another planet that we have to deal with and some of them can't go back to their planet because we don't know where, th- where they're from so that's that's going to be fun um, the two guys that come in behind her take a hell of a bump yeah because yeah that's the thing they do in this episode on top of the freezing thing like everyone like comes shooting out of the stargate uh and it's it seems like they should they should pad that metal ramp coming out of it because if everyone's gonna like come down head first on this you're gonna have concussions they should they should have like these mats or something to uh absorb the shock um so yeah uh, they continue evacuating uh, while they're fighting back with the thing. I think Kowalski has blown up a few of the claymores at this point. Uh, the caveman guy is just throwing rocks at the Jaffa from behind cover. It's pretty fun. See, I thought he was throwing grenades, and so, you know, I was saying all respect to Grenade Viking. Uh, no, I think these are rocks, because you wouldn't know how to use a grenade until, unless he's a real fast learner, I guess. Or he's just or he's just throwing, like, Pinned, yeah, he's just throwing like pinned grenades that don't do anything. That's also funny. Uh, I guess at that point it's the same as rocks. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so Daniel steps through after I guess all the refugees, or almost all of them, have already stepped through. Um, so I think, yeah, the caveman guy ha- is the only one that's left, I think, on, on the planet. Um, so they all fall back towards the gate, shooting back at the Jaffa, just waiting for the one... Oh, yeah, so one of the soldiers, Casey, he's named, because that's what uh, Kowalski yells when he gets shot. Uh, he falls down to the ground, and Kowalski goes over to check on him. Um, it's, a, it's a real chaotic scene. Oh, so they, they drag Casey up to right in front of the Stargate. Uh, we see the the caveman dude like kind of strangle the Jaffa from behind somehow. I don't know. He, he just kind of. So I guess yeah, that's the Jaffa because the, the the caveman dude strangles this Jaffa from under the arms somehow. I don't know how that works, but anyway, and he tosses him to the ground right next to where uh, Kowalski is tending to Casey, and we see this Jaffa's gold leap out of the belly and right into Kowalski's neck. So, uh, remember what I said about stingers earlier? That was a reference to that. I was, I was being very clever. Is, uh, is it just pretty, this easy for them to, like, jump from host to host? Yeah, apparently, like, it's... It's it's a pretty big deal when someone gets taken over by a Guaul, and it doesn't happen that often. But yeah, I guess it's not. It can happen like because that Jafar was dead, and the Guaul was just going into survival mode and jumping into whatever the closest thing it could find um, to to get to survive because it would have presumably died otherwise. Um, but yeah, it it just it, it did that. We saw that. Everyone saw it. Uh, uh, so yeah, we, we we cut back to Earth, where our friend the caveman steps through the Stargate and kind of goes in front of the open Stargate, 
uh, and then also Teal'c comes through right, uh, right next to him. Um, he hands his staff over to, to Carter in the, like, <laughs> to show that he's surrendering or, uh, turning himself over to the, to, to, to Earth. Um, uh, yeah, and we get, uh, Kowalski and uh, a couple of the guys, I guess Casey, who's alive or dead, it's not clear. Uh, also go through uh, and O'Neill and as soon as they're through they close the iris and go, and then it goes thump 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 because like a couple Jaffa followed through the Stargate after them and they went they just went splat on the iris and there's nothing left of them so uh, have fun in, <laughs> with that in your nightmares kids um, so everyone uh, all the, the surviving prisoners go over and hug uh, our friends the soldiers to thank them for saving them and Hammond just walks over there like kind of bewildered uh, he says well okay where are all these people uh, who are these people where did they come from uh, he doesn't ask that he just looks confused uh, we get paramedics uh, coming over to pick up Casey's body I think we see him groaning and stuff so I guess he's not dead um, so yeah Hammond says uh, can you explain what's going on here? Uh, or, uh, and Carter says, we can use the Stargate to send these people home, which is a pretty tall order, considering, uh, you know, could this, do any of them even know how to dial to their planet? It's not really known. Uh, we're not really going to see them again after this episode either, so anyone's guess how they dealt with them... Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's up to your imagination, I guess. Uh, Hammond asks... About Teal'c, it's like, what's he doing here? Uh, and O'Neill explains, well, this is Teal'c, He's, he can help us. Uh, ha- Hammond says, well, you do know what he is, right? And O'Neill says, yeah, he's the man who saved our lives. Aww. And O'Neill asks him to let him join SG-1, which is a <laughs> pretty big step, uh, considering he just met him. But I guess uh, Bond's forged in fire, or whatever the saying goes. Uh, he instantly trusts this guy enough to invite him to be a member of his team. Uh, Hammond is not quite convinced, but he says, uh, that's not up to you. We'll think about it, okay? Um, so uh, then we get a uh, final little scene with Kowalski kind of waking up. And uh, Will says, are you all right? And he says, yeah, 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 uh, I'm okay, I'm okay. He gets up with some difficulty, Uh we cut back to Hammond, who says, uh, uh, you have a debriefing of uh, SG-1 and 2 at 0700, uh, 0730, and we get like a nice point-of-view hero shot of uh, SG-1 standing in front of the Stargate, which is very good for promos, um, as they're hearing that they're about to get debriefed. Um, that, that is a deep promo shot. They linger... Yeah, they it's... They hold on it, it a this, while... This, yeah, the, this shot is absolutely to put at the end of the trailer when they're announcing this show. Um, end of the trailer and back of the DVD box. Exactly. Where uh, where exactly do we think they put the refugees from another world? Yeah, so that's what I'm wondering. Do they all have like quarters on the SGC base? Because I'd be surprised if they let anyone out on the surface of the earth because that seems like way too high a leak risk I, i'm pretty sure like Tilk doesn't get to go out of the base until a few episodes later when he's specifically on a mission with them 
So I don't think any of them get to go out of there. Here's the thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, their base is set in America, right? The United States? Yep. Yep. Yeah, you, Cheyenne Mountain. You could probably take those people from another planet, put them into a mm-hmm. small town in the Midwest, and if anybody asks them, like, so where are you guys from? Just, <laughs> oh, uh, Europe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the kind of thing, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. would do on in Marvel or something, right? Be like, oh, um, you guys I mean, with your wacky customs over in Turkey. Like, Americans are pretty dumb. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a... <laughs> yeah, that could work. There's a, there, there's a whole, like, uh, headcanon you could spin up about uh, these people being, like, put on some kind of, like, you know, learning to communicate with... Uh, in English program and everything, and, like, being uh, set up on, on some kind of refugee... Uh, program until they somehow fi- find the planets and they they keep like showing these people pictures of the planets they go to and asking is this your planet is this your planet did they, we find it they, they, there's got to be some of them that just never find where they're from and just stay on earth the rest of their lives they could pull all those refugees into one room and just tell them okay so if you talk to any person here in the states just yeah. say you're from san marino they won't know jack <laughs> shit about they, san marino they won't know <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, there, there's, there's a, there's a kind of joke later on where there, there's a character from another planet who has to stay on Earth at, at the end of that episode, and they say that the cover story is that she's from Toronto. So that's kind of the same idea, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, Daniel looks back at the Stargate and and tells O'Neill, uh, so she's out there somewhere. I'm gonna find her, and O'Neill says, yeah, and I'm gonna find Skara. Uh, and uh, Daniel says, so what do we do? And he says, well, we find him. Uh, so that's our big mission statement. And SG-1 disperses, and in a shot that should be taught in film school, we see that obscured by them was Kowalski, who was still standing right in front of the Stargate, uh, still clearly woozy from all of this. And he walks to the front of the ramp with a really evil look on his face. And what's the last thing we see before the episode ends? His eyes glow. So that's three three named characters that came back from the movie that became gold by the end of this episode. Good job, everyone. Uh, it's the, that classic uh, SG-1 making everything worse when they're trying to make everything better. Uh, and that's it for the episode. Uh, Children of the Gods is done. Um, we're going to close this down really fast because I don't think we got any questions anyway. And I know that Jimmy D and you have to go in like five minutes. I, so, uh, correct. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, I'm just going to go around and ask Eric, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, for the next 15 days, every night on the audio entropy discord, we will be watching the highlights of the grand sumo tournament that is starting tonight. Cool. Uh, Jimmy Dean, what TV show have you been watching? Uh, I, I haven't really gone into new territory. I've still been trying to oh, go no. through uh, Voyager. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. I, does Eurovision start next week? I have no idea. You, you should you should investigate about Eurovision and tell us about it if it's happened by it, the next it time you're on. definitely starts next week. Uh, that's my plug. Everyone watch Eurovision. <laughs> Watch Eurovision, and Jimmy Dean, you'll come back to us with a report on Eurovision uh, cor- next time you're on. Correct. Which, now, did okay. you watch the American Song Contest? Uh, I did not, no. 
than right. you are probably most people then. You can find my personal Twitter at the Real Simben. You can find the podcast Twitter at Jaffa Takes. You can uh, leave a comment on there if you have any questions you want to ask uh, for next episode. Uh, next episode, we're going to cover the first regular length episode of the show, which is The Enemy Within. Uh, you can already guess what that's going to be about based on how this episode ended. Um, and uh, what did I not mention? Oh, yeah, you can send an email to jaffatakespodcast at gmail.com if you'd rather uh, go that way to send something that you want to get read on this podcast. And with that, I will say uncree, everyone. <laughs>